it is impossible for conservation of energy to be a law in any sense of the word law if it is only applicable to a particular point of view. In other words, we keep the field of view the same, the subject matter, but we change the point of view of the observer. This is general relativity, which is a theory, and yet it's a very useful theory, but conservation of energy is not a law. It's a hypothesis <clears throat> that is assumed only if you want to assume it for the purposes of analysis. Namely, it's predicated on the segregation, the isolation of a system of energy for the purposes of analysis, but only for that purpose. And that's why it's mere hypothesis at best, but only selectively under certain circumstances in which time does not vary. It doesn't speed up, it doesn't slow down, it doesn't go backwards, it remains the same and in the forward direction. So if the observer should, in the observer's opinion, acknowledge or notice that time is shifting for the subject matter, the energy under observation, while from the point of view of the energy, no, time, no shift of time ha is, being, is taking place, then what's the truth of the reality of the matter? Because it's the same subject matter, the same energy, but a different point of view gives a different observation and a different conclusion. How, rele how relevant can conservation of energy be if it's valid from one point of view and it's not valid from another point of view, even though it's the same energy? Now, I'm not saying anything new in a sense because I've already said this, but not this way. And I'm saying it this way to emphasize a conclusion that conservation of energy can't possibly be a law if it's valid from one point of view and invalid from another, or not applicable, not relevant from another point of view, even though it's the same energy that we are observing. How can it be a law? So I'm, I'm phrasing it now as a question because I'm kind of, in, it's incredulousness, incredulity. <laughs> I just got to stick up my butt. I can't wrap my mind around conservation being a law anymore, it's more like a humongous question mark. Who, who dreamed that up, that it's a law? Obviously, if you take their point of view, if you take a certain point of view, then conservation will appear to be a law because it's always true, because you always restricted yourself to a particular point of view. And not merely a point of view re restriction, but a timeline restriction of, of ignoring transience, which defy a, a continuity of time. They defy it. Without a doubt, without question, a transient does not possess a continuity of time. It possesses a shifting of time, which means... They have nothing to do with conservation of energy. Oh, yeah, but nobody cares about it because they don't possess a whole lot of power. <laughs> Capture that, not a whole lot of power, because of the type, the nature of the transient, the structure of it. Capture it in sufficient capacitances and sufficient inductances and bounce that stuff back and forth between them, and you've got yourself 
an accumulation of reactants. Over time, that can truly amount to something when it's passed through a resistance, uh, such as a simple resistor, or a uh, conditional resistance, such as a full diode bridge, you can turn that stuff into energy. Far more than what you fed the, the situation. Far more. Because you wanted to foster Foster's Reactance Theorem, which... Yeah, a little pun on, on words there. You want to foster Foster's reactance theorem in which impedances become negative and coils begin to generate power. But only under low power conditions. This is what Foster's reactance theorem does not cover. The why, the how, the how, excuse me, not why, but how. How to go about creating negative resistance. Well, one of the, or negative impedance, one of the, factors to consider is low power situations because the presence of voltage suppresses over reactance the over reactance of negative impedance and again you know this i had to learn by trial and error this is not something you're going to read in a book although i've heard people deny that voltage is a source of regulation yet i have read about it years ago that the alternate term for a voltage source is a voltage regulator or voltage regulation because the presence of adequate voltage, what we normally con uh, commonsensically consider to be um, adequate to satisfy a load condition, let's say, is also adequate for suppressing overreactance and suppressing Foster's reactance theorem. It won't occur. <laughs> it's, it's a theorem because in theory, it could happen, but only under certain conditions. And the conditions we set up, we assume, okay, the load needs so many volts, so we supply it so many volts, and then Foster's reactance theorem never kicks in. It never occurs. Now, when we consider a uh, spark gap or a neon bulb, when we cross a certain threshold of voltage, the resistance shifts all of a sudden. But that's when we increase the voltage past a certain point. Then we get negative impedance. So you have to wonder, with that kind of training, that kind of emphasis on uh, spark gaps and whatnot, similar, anything related to spark gaps, how could anybody conceive of doing the opposite and getting even far better results when the, when the voltage is drastically reduced? Nobody in their right mind would think of it, consider that possibility. But what does it say in the Yi Ching? It says that if you go too far in one direction, you flip into the, the opposite. That means that if you take something extreme enough, it starts looking like it's opposing complementary extreme value. So if you take goodness far enough, if we follow that line of reasoning, it should be true. That if we take goodness far enough, goodness begins to look like evil and vice versa. If you take evil far enough evil starts to look like goodness. And not just look like it, but behave like it, smell like it, walk like it. It's a duck quacking. It's the same thing at that point. There's no difference between them. For all intents and purposes, the goodness becomes evil when it becomes extremely good. Now, why would that be? Because it's cruel to be extremely good when you're not accustomed to it. It's damn right cruel. And even if 
if you're not ex- if you're not too sudden about it, say you were gradual, okay, so you weren't being cruel in terms of suddenness, of uh, increasing the the uh, the extent of the extremity of goodness. But let's say you took a long time, then then why would it still be evil? Because when goodness gets to be intense enough, you become God. You can do whatever you like. Isn't that what evil? Isn't that what an, the, the nature of an outlaw means? You live outside the laws and conventions and social mores of a particular society, and you become an outcast. But you also become a criminal in the eyes of the herd, who is following the pack of society, and you're breaking their rules of mediocrity. Is what you're breaking. Because now you're a god. They call you an outlaw, <clears throat> but you're a god because you have all this power and flexibility to do as you please. You live a lonely life, but so what? You got all this power, and nobody can take it away from you because you exercised your right to develop those powers. Now you're an outlaw. And yet, if you're evil enough, doesn't that not spur people to be even more good to make up the difference. It, it emboldens them. It, it, it hearkens them to lead an even more goodly life than they ever did before because they have to in the face of all the evil that surrounds them and intensifies and targets them and persecutes them. Isn't that when spiritual branches of yoga sprout from nowhere, you know, from out of thin air? That's what happened to a certain branch of yoga in um, Central America. It came out of nowhere because of the persecution that the conquistadors um, laid on top of the heads of the natives. And Carlos Castaneda writes about that. Writes about how his master was part of a tradition that was only a few hundred years old. In the East, in India, the, the, the traditions of yoga masters goes back, nobody even knows how far back. They say it's timeless because it's an unbroken tradition. But the tradition of, uh, that came forth because of the, conquist- the persecution by the conquistadors was a circumstantial situation that created a temporary lineage of yoga masters who died out with the, the master who preceded Carlos Castaneda as the last one because it wasn't needed anymore. The Western civilization doesn't persecute the natives anymore, and um, and Carlos is is not considered. He did not. He was not considered by his master to be a, a, uh, an embodiment of the tradition that he be he became a student of, because the master, for some reason, chose the wrong student, who was not um, capable of living up to the standards of that um, yoga tradition that that master was part of. I think his name was John Matus. No, Don Juan. Don Juan Matus was the name of his master, M-A-T-U-S, Matus. And he realized at some point that, oops, I made a mistake, Carlos. You're not the man for the job to replace me, but it's too late to go find somebody else. So it looks like it was just meant to be that this tradition of ours should die out. Because it didn't have any branches. It just had that one trunk, and that was it, like a sapling. And that was it. And and, uh, so Don Juan Matus was the last of his kind. 
And Carlos, being the journalistic mentality that he was, he um, he wrote about it and documented it because he was uh, specializing in anthropology, specifically, um, you know, the the Central American um, societies and cultures. When he was going to UCLA, when he first met Don Juan Matus and became a part of his uh, teaching, his school, and was schooled, but he couldn't. He wasn't a, a, an appropriate receiver, he, he, so he could not embody, fully embody what he was teaching, what he was being taught, excuse me. Um, you know, he absorbed as much as he could, and he talked about everything else when he, he was able to remember it. He wrote a lot of books, and each book is a therapy, a lesson like an onion skin in peeling away the memories, because when his master uh, crossed over to the other dimension, or whatever, for lack of a better word, and took all of his associates with him. Um, Carlos was left with his associates, incapable of leading the flock. <clears throat> um, and it took him years to... And he forgot everything. And it took him years. Year by year, he slowly remembered the things that he was taught, and then he wrote about it to record what he remembered that he had <laughs> so promptly forgotten it all. So he was, definitely wasn't <laughs> an appropriate student. Anyway... Um, I bring that up for a very good reason because it's a good example. But I did get off on a side note and I forgot where I started. Um, <laughs> oh yes, extremes. Well, no, uh, no, it has to do with um, energy. Um, why? What did I, why did I start this recording? Oh, oh yes, conservation. Yes, how can it? So that question still remains unanswered in my mind. If you can answer it, chime right in. But I can't see how it can be a law if it's not true for all points of view. Assuming that the field of view of the subject matter remains the same. If we only vary the point of view and keep the field of view the same, the, the, the uh, object under observation, the energy un under observation, if we keep that the same, can we? Should we not all agree to the same? Isn't that what science is? You know, replicatable observation, but because of general relativity, no. Science goes out the window. The whole point of science was to replicate observation. Somebody does an experiment, you do the same experiment, and you get the same results. Oops, no, you don't, because you don't have the same point of view. And there is a phrase in the Vedas that describes this situation. So actually, it's it's very appropriate. I can't remember the whole thing in Sanskrit. I can only remember the first few words, but I can remember this, uh, most of the English translation. The Sanskrit goes, Richo akshare, Richo akshare parame vyoman. And then it goes on and on and on. Basically, what it says is knowledge is structured in consciousness, Knowledge is different in different states of consciousness. Um, I forgot the third point. But anyway, the second half, that's the first half. The second half goes on to say, he who is not open to this reality, what can these laws of nature do for him? Absolutely zip. <laughs> but he who is open to it is firmly established in it. So, if what I'm saying means nothing to you, yeah, 
because it has nothing to do with you. It's you don't have you're not ready yet. For, you you don't have the right consciousness to be receptive to, to this sort of thing. That knowledge can appear to be truly different. In other words, true for one person and not true for another because they don't have the same point of view. They don't have the same consciousness. So how can they possibly agree on anything? Even though the experiment was performed and yet the observation is different. So point of view does matter. And uh, the so-called law of the conservation of energy is not a law under certain points of view that would indicate or would give the appearance that time has shifted, at the very least, let alone whether or not it goes backwards. But it's good to say now, it's safe to say, that a backwards direction of time is nothing more than a shift of time anyway, because it may be slower than the time frame of somebody else and appear to be going backwards because it is slower, but only because it's, it's slower. So time can still be moving forward just at a different rate uh, than by comparison to something else that is uh, running al along at a faster clock. And because it's at a slower rate, a slower clock speed, it appears to be moving backwards by, from the point of view of the faster time frame. That much I've, I've managed to square away in the last uh, recording or two of this series of podcasts. Um, so it does come down to shifting. I thought, you know, shifting was like a simplistic uh, way to describe something that was far more, could be far more extreme, such as reversal. But now I see it all boils down to shifting. It is, in the last analysis, it's, it's all about shifting of time regardless of whether or not we think it went backwards or not, or forwards or whatever. It's still shifting. The time rate dilates or contracts, as the case may be, depending on what point of view you take. So how can conservation of energy be a law? Because of this exclusion, this loophole in Noether's theorem, Emily Noether, which somebody on the Internet made a joke to me about it many years ago, her name is spelled N-O-E-T-H-E-R, and if you split it up into two words, it's no ether. So he thought that he was suggesting that maybe she's a fictional character that somebody, uh, some group of uh, physicists cooked up um, rather than take um, credit for the, her theories. Who knows? And then they found a portrait of a gal and say, hey, that was Emily Noether, you know, <laughs> who lived yada yada, and maybe it was their, one of their grandmothers, you know, who, who knows? <laughs> Instead of saying your grandma wears army boots, you can say your grandma invented a, a theorem of physics, but whatever. Um, <sighs> you know, let's joke about it. Why not? Um, but see, now it's a sexist joke, so that's not a good joke, is it? Oh, God. You know, there's always problems here. <laughs> Male chauvinists. Well, isn't it? Isn't it, a, isn't it for the most part a cadre? of male chauvinistic pigs? Could be. Could very well be that science is ruled by such among us as they whom I describe. Whom I describe. Well, whatever. <laughs> um, but I think I've said enough on this topic, right? I've, I've juiced about all the juice out of it that I could possibly juice. Anything more than this, I'd be repeating myself and that would be nauseatingly boring, right? ad nauseum, 
at nauseatingly boring. So we'll just kind of forget this, you know, for the now and just, I'll shut up now. <laughs>